You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Savage Arms. We all know that the human body comes in all different shapes and sizes. However, most firearms do not. That is why Savage Arms has rolled out their AccuFit system on the 110 platform. AccuFit uses interchangeable components that allow hunters to custom fit both comb height and the length of pull without taking their rifle to a gunsmith. In fact, the only tool you need is a Phillips head screwdriver. If you want to find out more information about the AccuFit customization system, visit savagearms.com. Today, we've got a great episode lined up with Troy Pottinger. We go into a great level of detail on his process for systematically locating specific deer to go after in really big timbered areas, along with perspective on the amount of time and energy generally associated with finding even a single deer Troy would want to go after. We talk about when he does his boots on the ground scouting, when he sets up his trail cameras, where, and very importantly, how and when he checks them to keep a low impact. We also dive into the specifics of what makes a bulletproof setup, how in the mountains wind speed and thermals can override one another or combine to give general wind directions and currents that the deer are going to use to their advantage. Troy discusses how he accesses his areas, be it from a ridgetop or valley access, how he makes his final approach to the actual stand, and then what type of natural barriers are in place to prevent deer from ever discovering a scent trail. There's a lot of good info packed into this episode, and I learned quite a bit on the finer details that I'm really interested in implementing in some of the areas I hunted last year. As most of you know, I've been using Onyx for several years for e-scouting and waypoint management. In the field or at home, I can browse aerials and topos, map my routes, draw lines and waypoints, color code points of interest, geotag photos of rubs, or even what a specific tree I intend on hunting looks like, so that I can find it in the dark, say for example. Furthermore, I can download maps for offline use, and of course browse public and private land boundaries. Use the code DIY for a discount on an Onyx Hunt membership. And speaking of codes, the code DIY will also get you a discount on Spartan Forge, the deer movement prediction algorithm which uses machine learning from collared deer study data from across the country. I imagine that a lot of you are probably already familiar with Troy, but for those who aren't, he is a really successful uh, DIY whitetail hunter who's actually from northern Idaho, and he's kind of made a name for himself hunting these big woods mountain bucks. And if, if you want some examples, you know, just look them up on Facebook, um, and and you'll immediately see kind of the caliber of deer that he's able to get on in some of those big woods areas, which is is pretty impressive because it's not that common that you see that level of, of whitetails being taken down, not only just in general, but, um, without the agriculture kind of being outside the Midwest and, and doing it in an area that requires a lot more dedication is, is very interesting. And, and I have a lot of questions, you know, as I dive into the, the bigger woods type stuff myself that 
I really wanted to ask Troy, so we figured what better way to help make the listeners hopefully get some knowledge uh, out of this conversation too, to, to go ahead and have a podcast. So uh, thanks for jumping on today, Troy. Uh, hey, Garrett. Uh, really cool. You asked me to be on. I'm actually looking forward to get a visit with you about you know, this big wood stuff, and I appreciate you getting a hold of me. So yeah, I'm ready to go and looking forward to it. Awesome. So just to kind of lay a little bit of groundwork about, I guess, your core area of where you hunt. I mean, we're talking a, a vast, vast area. I've, I've done some hunting out in the mountains for elk and mule deer, not for whitetails ever, but I mean, the country out there is just big. And to, to give some size perspective in, into it, I mean, what are some of the acreages in terms of the like land that you have accessible around you that you will typically hunt? Well, you know, Gary, I live out in the West. I live actually, I should say Northwest. Um, I, I, I think a lot of people, when they hear the word West, they, you know, they think if they're not from the West and if they haven't spent much time in the West, they think of huge skies, big open country, giant mountains, all that. I, I kind of live a little more up in the big timber country up near British Columbia in the northern panhandle of Idaho. And uh, we were talking a little bit about this before we got on, but the panhandle's pretty narrow. So um, I hunt the big public lands, the pretty very large tracks some of them close you know some are close to a million acres some are more uh public uh, federal ground that's big timber country uh it's pretty much all a canopy of timber that covers mountains that run up to oh seven eight nine thousand feet and uh yeah i i, I kind of run around in what i call a tr- the triangle up here i i don't live too far from montana and i don't live too far from washington so the country that I'm hunting, if you got on a map and looked at the National Forest Service grids, you'd see several different National Forest Service in those areas of, uh, that are on each side of northern Idaho Panhandle. And then I got Canada right above me. So some of the bucks I hunt are literally crossing the border in and out of Canada, too. Wow. So, yeah. And uh, again, you know, over over a couple million acres of accessible public land in those three states. And so in general, is the deer population somewhat low in that big timbered area, at least in terms of whitetails? Yeah. Yeah. I can compare it to, to a lot of the Midwest hunts I've done in the past. And even the Montana river bottoms carry a lot more deer than the mountain. And anytime you get away from agriculture and we've got agriculture in Northern Idaho and some of the river bottoms and Eastern Washington is known for its agriculture. And so is uh, Western Montana in some places usually in the lower elevations. Uh, but as soon as you get up into the mountains to answer your question, as soon as you get away from all the feed that's available to the agricultural deer, your numbers drop considerably. And it's, you know, it's very evident, you know, even on trail cameras and whatnot. Uh, yeah, you get into a lot lower deer density population and you run into all the alpha predators. Uh, the places I hunt have grizzly bear, a lot of wolves, a lot of mountain. We probably have as good a mountain lion population as you'll find in the country in northern Idaho. And then, uh, you know, we've got the coyotes and everything else, the black bears. But the wolves and the lions really wreak some havoc on our animals. So they keep the numbers down pretty low, too. And then it's public land, so it gets 
it's hunted fairly hard and we have an extremely long rifle season. So yeah, there's a lot working against a deer herd's uh, ability to thrive over populate. You just never see it in the mountains yet. You hope and pray every year that a couple of the bucks that you're after, if you didn't kill them, you hope and pray they make it, you know, through what I call wolf season, which is when the snow hits and the wolves get on them pretty hard. Yeah. So for locating deer in that type of an area where the population is already low to begin with, and I imagine the mature buck population is subsequently even lower yet. I mean, how many, how many deer are you trying to generally keep general tabs on? I mean, obviously as many as you can find, but I mean, what's um, a, what's a typical number for perspective? Like how many deer am I hoping to put on, say a target list? Sure. Let's start with, let's start with that. Okay. So first of all, just for your listeners, just to paint a picture, I'm probably putting on 20 to 30,000 miles a year on my truck, just keeping tabs on them. Um, at least 20 a year and a lot of times up to 30. So I'm covering a lot of ground, lots of, uh, mountain driving into the, into the back country. Uh, the Northwest is full of logging roads. So there is some accessibility. Um, and then, you know, drainage by drainage by drainage, um, mapping them out, laying out cameras, trying to find a buck that I'm interested in, which I really target five-year-old bucks and older and that's about it so i am covering a lot of ground and i hope every year you know i I really work hard to get five bucks that are worth hunting and that's over a three-state area so if you can let's say you can find those five on any given year which obviously is a lot of work as you just mentioned to find those five i mean percentage-wise how how does that compare to like you might have to sift through, you know, 40, 50, say three or four year olds to find those, the five big ones that you want to go after. I mean, what do those odds look like by the time they get to that age class? Yeah, I'd say 10% or less, 5% or less of the number of bucks I have on camera are that age class between five and 10%. So for every 10 to 15 bucks I get on camera, I might find one that meets the age class and that might interest me. And sometimes it's, you know, I'll look through 30 to 40 whitetail bucks on camera. So you can do the math there, too. Uh, I might look through 30 or 40 in a huge area before I find one that is something, you know, a buck that interests me. So, yeah, it can it can be less than 5% of what I look through. So I run a lot of cameras, um, you know, well over 100. And, again, that's over three states, um, Montana, Idaho, Washington. But I'm just always hiking, shed hunting, um, laying out big country. I kind of lay my cameras out like a trapper would a trap line, and I try to find a deer that interests me. Um, so, yeah, as far as numbers goes, I am putting a lot of work in just to find a buck that's that's five and a half years old or older and that, uh, that I want to hunt and target. And I'm also really paying close attention to great DNA and genetics in certain areas and keeping tabs on great young up-and-comer bucks that I see that have big potential. And You know, I've had several bucks over the years that I've watched grow up. From, as soon as they got dispersed out and got settled into a kind of a home area, 
which is generally pretty big in the mountains. Um, I've had them grow up from two and a half to five, six, seven years old and killed them at that age structure once they got to five. After, you know, for four years on my cameras before I would even hunt them. Does it ever wind up that you have multiple deer that you want to go after kind of on the, the same drainage or the, even the same camera? Or, or does it usually end up that there's kind of one at any given time in any given area? You know, I feel like I've got a lot better at it over the years as far as really being efficient and zoning in on drainages that tend to hold a little higher percentage of better deer and age structure just for whatever factors that play into it. But a really great um, area for me or spot for me where maybe I run five or six cameras in a a large drainage, say a five mile area, or maybe I run 10 cameras in a five mile area. If you were looking at it on a map, I'll have a really great spot would be two or three, two, two, probably more like two. Maybe if I'm fortunate, I'll get three, five plus year olds. And we're talking about a big area and where it really gets good is when I can get two five plus year olds at the same site you know, on a big community scrape. Um, that's where I really enjoy hunting those spots because it ups my odds on, you know, two big shooters at one spot doesn't happen a lot in the mountains, but I feel like in the last decade, I've been getting a little better at that as far as just really zoning in on areas where those old mountain bucks truly feel safe and they hide out and they live. On those rare occasions where you do have say two good ones coming into a site do you feel like the the amount of sign increases there and, and maybe you're even more likely to get daylight activity because there's more competition between those those two older age class animals well, yeah where i usually find those big deer is where i find the big deer that uh use the same community type scrape or that area there's always a healthy population of does which Guys will ask me, what's a lot of does for you, Troy, at one scrape? It'll be three, three or four. Mature does, that's a lot. Mm -hmm. um, a doe usually always has her fawn. You know, a doe's always going to have her fawn with her. and doesn't matter if a fawn is a buck or a doe, that fawn gets kicked off that next year uh, by the mama. So she's always raising her real young ones. But, now if I get two or three mature does using the same community scrape with their fawns, you're looking at six deer, seven deer. That's quite a few. And a lot of times with the mountain bucks, um, they'll really pay close tabs to that, those two or three mature does because they don't have a lot to choose from. So I do feel like I do get that competitive scenario out here because I probably have as many whitetail bucks, now not mature bucks, but I probably have as far as number go, numbers go real close to as many bucks on a camera as I do does. But keep in mind, I'm running cameras located a lot closer to a old mature bucks, big hideout or favorable hideout bedding area bucks that are usually higher in elevation. And I'm usually intercepting those bucks and movement patterns towards the doe family groups if that makes sense so i am spending a lot more time closer to the bucks outside of the rut okay yeah that makes sense 
Yep. When yeah. the rut comes, I'm moving. You know, I'm I'm moving in on those family groups more. Do you find that the those mountain bucks will shift their their bedding locations and where they're spending a lot of their time once that rut start does start to get closer? That that maybe early season they're betting, you know, throw a number out there quarter mile away from some of those doe uh, family groups, and then toward the rut they start betting say half the distance, or do they tend to stay in the same betting locations throughout the year? Uh, that's a good question, and the yeah, you're you're exactly right. But it's even a greater distance. Um, those the the mature mountain bucks that have been in the game a long time and have it figured out, they'll they'll often spend them. They'll often hide out. My season opens August thirtieth, and when I'm hunting August thirtieth, I'm literally if I'm not in the game with a big mature buck unless I'm within two to four hundred yards of his bedding. And I call it a bedding zone or a bedding area because my bucks get hunted 24-7 by lions and wolves and whatever. So they move around a little bit, even in an area they really like. And they, you know, they set up and bed based on the prevailing wind and the thermals that day. And they keep themselves alive doing that. So, yes, absolutely. That, that September month is all about being real close to an old hermit buck's hideout. Uh, he doesn't hardly move much in the daylight. He doesn't need to. He always positions himself where he has the best wind advantage on the mountain. Uh, he always positions himself where he has water close. He always positions himself where he's got a ton of native feed for that time of the year. And he really doesn't have to move far. But he'll usually, and what I find in the mountains, is he'll usually almost always be at a higher elevation than the doe family groups that are down in elevation, maybe 500 to 1,000 feet in, in lush vegetation in the most favorable habitat because that's what the does do. They live where the habitat's excellent because they're raising their young there. But those big bucks will definitely move, make camp, change their bedding zones and hideouts as soon as October rolls in and they start really checking on different doe family groups and connecting with uh, different community scrapes at a greater range. And then by mid-October into late October out here, they're making some big rounds, just checking the community scrapes, checking on the does, you know, just kind of seeing what's happening. And every now and then we'll get a doe that'll come in in early November. And those, those old deer know, they know the photo period of those does. They kind of know which does come in early and, and it's just because they've had a lot of experience with those same doe family groups and breeding there. So I do see that. And then those big bucks in November in the mountains will literally move around like they're on some type of <laughs> job that moves you around all over the country. That's what they do. They'll, they'll bed where they need to during November to service the does that they need to cover and then they'll move on. So yeah, it's a heck of a game of chess and, always trying to stay a step ahead of them the most difficult obstacle in the the grand scale of the mountains. Yeah, it seems like early season, and I would almost even say perhaps November, because of the low deer density, are probably much harder than when they start to maybe become a little bit more predictable in, say, like late October. Is that is that pretty much what you find, too? Um, I would, yeah those dates are fairly close. Um, 
in the early season, you know, for me, it, it is September and that early October, but about October 10th to October 15th, that's when I really start seeing bucks change. And and sometimes they'll move a drainage over. Sometimes I'll pick them up a mile or three, four, five miles away. And then they'll settle in on multiple doe family groups and another drainage. And it's interesting because I've run so many cameras over the years and, and really been able to keep a lot of data on specific bucks that we can often predict based on our previous year's data or several years data of certain bucks when they'll move into a new drainage and start servicing those doe family groups for two or three weeks and then when they'll move to the next one and it's funny as those bucks get older those bigger bucks get older they uh they hold true to those patterns uh usually from about Three and a half years years old on, I can usually count on a buck to hold pretty true to where he's going to move around um, year after year after year, all the way into six, seven, eight years old. Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. So it is. It's a it's a different beast out here because of the size of the country and the deer density and the predators. So one thing I'm trying to figure out is, I mean you run a lot of cameras in a enormous area and certainly it sounds yep. like over the years you've figured out which places are better than others and become more efficient in terms of not wasting a camera spot and only putting them where you know you're going to get whatever pictures you're going to need to get. But in terms of checking the trail cameras, I mean, that sounds like obviously a lot of where those high mileages come in on the truck too. Are you just like every chance you get driving out into the mountains and, and checking the cameras throughout the season? in in preparation for the right opportunity to make a, a move or because you're, you're not running cell cameras or are you running cell cameras or are you just checking every one of your cameras that you have spread out like on foot yeah um i can't hardly run a cell camera anywhere in this country because i don't have service yeah the couple places that i do get service it's a blessing for me because it saves me hundreds of miles sometimes um but to answer your question, it's kind of a cycle. I have a big circuit that I run, and I map it all out. And, you know, as soon as the snow dissipates to a level I can get back into the backcountry in April here, uh, my backcountry whitetails will uh, start to migrate back up in, and the first thing they do is they go right back to their community scrapes, and they lay down their scent, and they let every deer in April and May know that they're back and that they survived the winter. So the licking branches just blow up in April and May out here. Hmm. And the bucks and all the does come back and they uh, initiate their uh, ID and they let everybody know that they're alive. And then I just keep track of that. And what I try to do, I kind of have a rule of thumb because I don't like to disturb my deer too much. I try to check every camera once a month from April until August. And by then I've got two or three, hopefully four or five big shooters spread out over hundreds of thousands, millions of acres total, uh, three states. I try to locate, you know, some great bucks to target. But no, I, I really, I, I have a pretty organized system of where I travel, what areas I'm going to go into four or five days at a time. I am a, I'm a life, I've taught school for 25 years, so I do have my summers, myself but i also run a small logging dirt work construction business that i've ran since i was in my 20s that i've had 
So, you know, I might work four days one week and work four tens on my logging business and then boom, I'll go for three days or four days straight and I'll just run my camera lines and uh, live in my pickup. I do a lot of sleeping in the back of my four door <laughs> and I just love it. You know, that's what I've done for decades and a lot of camping out in the mountains. I don't have time to pull a camper around or any of that. It's just go, 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 go and go daylight till dark and sometimes into the dark and make my rounds and, and assess my, what I got going on at my, and every camera I run, I have a big scrape that I hang them on. Um, I always include a community scrape at every camera uh, because the mountain deer really adhere to scraping and because they're so spread out and the bucks are nomadic and really cover a lot of ground and the doe family groups are, you know, if I would say minimal compared to agriculture type country, uh, the scrapes are just a great spot to get all the deer in a two or three or four mile area, usually two to three miles for sure. They'll at least come by and check that big community scrape once or twice in the summer. And if that community scrape is located close to a favorable mature bucks hideout, then I'll get him all the time. I'll get him every week and a lot of times in the daylight. And then we, you know, I could talk about how I game plan and hunt those early season bucks and how I'll move in and use mock scrapes to put them right in his face in the early season. But anyway, all that to say, yeah, it's about a once a month check and a lot of travel and it's, just something I really enjoy doing. I just kind of feel like I'm out there all by myself all the time doing this process and, and I love it. You know, it's what I live for. Yeah. It's, it's pretty interesting. It seems like whenever I talk to somebody who's, you know, consistently getting on, you know, older age class deer every year, there's, there's always like a common theme that they're spending a lot more time than the average guy in, in terms of finding deer to go after. And then just in general, spending more time, uh, scouting than they do hunting. Um, it definitely seems like that's the case with you as well. Yeah. You know, if you, if you broke down my year based on hours, I'm sure I scout probably even, I mean, I, back in the day, I used to keep track at least of the days I was in the woods. And when I say days, it didn't necessarily mean all day. But at least I spent time in the woods with whitetail scouting. Even if it was after work, after my job, I get off teaching. I have four, three or four hours of daylight. I counted them all. And there was a lot of, lot of years where I was getting 250 days a year, or at least partial days where I spent in the woods. And when you put that kind of time in, it's hard to explain, but you just learn so much more. You know, just like the other day, I drove a hundred miles so that I could get an hour and a half of, of shed hunting in and scouting in on a buck two days ago. And I picked up a nice set of sheds in the last 15 minutes of it. You know, how many guys are going to want to drive a hundred miles to do that? Right. Exactly. You know, I don't know. You know, and that's, that's what I live for. If, and the reason I went to this spot is I have this tremendous buck that I'm trying to find his sheds to. And I knew if I drove down there after work, I would have about an hour, an hour and a half of daylight to at least comb the general area of where I was hunting. And I didn't find his sheds, but I found another great buck shed that's an up-and-comer. 
and he's young, but he's a great buck. And I thought, you know what, if I wouldn't have done this, and if I wouldn't have pushed myself to go do this and make this drive and then drive 40 miles back home because it was 100 miles from work, but my house is quite a ways from work. Then I drove 40 miles after that to get back to the house. You know, I just thought, you know, that's the difference right there. Me picking those sheds up and having a great evening on a literally it was only about a 30 minute hike I had time for before it got dark and I found those sheds. And I was just like, yes, perfect. It was worth it. Now, do I have days where I go do that and find nothing? Sure. But there's also days where, you know, I'll go shed hunt for 13 hours in a day and pick up 20. So it just, a lot of it just boils down to that effort and making myself go. Yeah, this is definitely, definitely good, uh, a good reminder for how putting in the work can definitely help uh, reap some rewards. I do have a question yeah. on your, your trail camera circuit strategy. And that's just in, like how you, how you try and minimize your impact you know, you're checking them say once a month, but even when you go to check them, are you specifically going on certain routes that you think are as minimal impact and crossing as few deer travel corridors as, as possible? Or are you just kind of going with the uh, mindset that it's just a transient, you know, once in a blue moon human scent walking through there and therefore they're going to smell it once and they kind of forget about it. Um, how, and maybe maybe by doing that you're saving time and able to cover more ground more quickly. How do you access your trail cameras? Great question, and I, I think it's a question that I wanted a lot of guys to ask. And I think it's a great question because a lot of it has to do with the time of the year. So, you know, if you think if you think about for me personally, my January, February, March stuff, I'm shed hunting the ground anyway. I'm not. I, I purposely kind of have some dates where I change up how I go in and check those cameras. So if I'm going to shed hunt the area and grid it and break it down, that's when I go in. And for that day, I can, I don't care because it's February, it's January, February, March. April's when I start to try to be a little more careful and, and uh, invade an area differently to check a camera. But while I'm in my shed hunting phase, I, I'm not one bit worried about, say, traveling 150 miles to a remote location and literally gridding every inch of the ground I'm trying to grid to find a buck sheds. A lot of times, he's already, he's migrated five miles away from me anyway, and he hasn't come back yet. And it's because I have ran so much intelligence and research data on bucks that I know when they're going to move back in based on the snow levels and whatnot. So I really play that game of when I can invade hammer areas, you know, and I do have the luxury of knowing that some deer migrate. Some of my deer don't in different, it depends on what location I am in and what elevation, but all that to say, as soon as I start to see that antler growth and I can tell who is who on a camera, especially by May, that's where I'm being extremely careful once a month, sliding in, sliding out, taking my tree stand type hunting approach, uh, going to all the necessary cleanliness that I do to try not to leave a lot of scent, residual scent. Really like to check on my best deer in the rain. I, I'll go in on a big mountain buck in May, June, and July, and I hardly won't, 
I almost won't go in and check on him unless I'm in a rainstorm or right before a big rain or time it right during, you know, where I just, where I have something that washes the scent free in the area and then I get out. So hopefully that made sense. Um, the closer I get to season, when my season opens August 30th, I'm much more delicate and careful, even on my once a month uh, intrusion. During the shed hunting piece of it, I hammer it out. Don't worry about it a bit. I backtrack bucks. I get on their snow trails, and I love to follow them backwards and see what they're doing, even right now, and see where they're bedding. And you know, if I find where they've laid down and bedded, or I pick up their set of sheds. Uh, you know, I'll literally just stop right there and I'll break down every aspect of that spot, what the wind's doing, how the wind works there all day, how the thermals work in that spot all day. I'll dissect the vegetation in the area. I'll see what he's eating, why he's there, probably try to decipher whether or not based on what he's doing right now and how close it was to the end of the season, if that's where he was hiding out while he shed before he moved off in the migration due to deep snow I keep track of all the snow levels. So my big bucks usually won't leave an area until there's about 18 inches or more snow. So I keep close track of that too, because the snow levels will change the migrational pattern of some of my bucks yearly, depending on how much snow they get early. So all that gets factored in. Okay. But to back up uh, and answer your question, yeah, the closer I get to season, I get real careful. Is part of that too, do you think that just – they, they maybe don't have a high tolerance or, or maybe it's it's easy enough for them to relocate if you do bust them that it, it's just not worth not worth trying to play that game versus if you were say in some place where they had to bed in certain locations then then perhaps you could be a little bit more aggressive because you know they're not gonna get pushed too far away absolutely and most very few people ask me that question either um my bucks have a million options and a million acres to do it in literally they don't have to come back to a specific area to stay safe they're not congregated from agriculture and open ground they literally have millions of acres to just say screw you i don't like this pressure i'm going to move two three four miles away and they will do it and they'll do it when wolves come in and get after them, and they'll do it when a lion comes through. They'll just they, – they have bug-out areas they go to. And I've learned that about my big deer because I've tracked them several miles in different drainages on trail cameras. For example, I'll have a pack of wolves come through on my cameras, and they start hunting all the deer on that big ridge and that area and that drainage. And I'll literally – have a buck that I'm hunting in one drainage move two, three, four, up to five miles sometimes and show up in another drainage and he'll stay there for months. Hmm. And all he did was got bumped one time by a pack of wolves. Yeah, that's pretty wild. I've had some bucks. Yeah. And then I've had some bucks that will try to stay home and try to stay in their area and I find them dead. Or I've had some bucks that just are really good at surviving and they'll stay and they'll come back two or three weeks later, and they'll survive it. And I don't know how they're surviving because the mountain lion or the wolves are still in the area. I, I think a lot of it has to do with that, a buck's personality, kind of his demeanor. 
But I would say 50% of my older bucks or more will just flat out relocate. They will. They're like kind of like an older man. They just don't tolerate any bullshit. They don't want to die. They just up and move because they have the same habitat. They have the same scenario two or three or four miles away, and it's a piece of cake for them to get there. And and that's what I've witnessed and learned over decades of just really paying close attention to where I find their sheds one year, the next year, or especially the trail cameras. The trail cameras don't lie. I pick, you know, my son killed a buck a few years ago. It's on a whitetail addictions episode that we had him figured out every summer. He would summer in one drainage. And then soon as mid October hit, he would move 4.8 miles on a map, which in mountainous country is a long damn ways. It's way more than 4.8 miles because they're up and down and yeah. all kinds of terrain. And he would move 4.8 miles in a straight line on our maps, and he would show up at a community scrape every year and stay there all the way through the rut. And he did it every year. By the t- When he got to five years old, we targeted him, and we literally killed him the first time we hunted him right after he moved over again that year on that scrape. Wow, that's pretty incredible. Yeah, it's, it is. And it's just, you know, if I didn't have the cameras, if I wasn't running the cameras, the country I hunt, if you will, you can't glass it. Binoculars are useless to you because the timber stands are – far as you can see for miles at the top of the mountains so these deer have endless cover so you know you're not glassing a montana river bottom or a north dakota prairie and you're hunting whitetails that are very comfortable moving half a mile to a mile every day just to go feed and bed in the mountains yeah one thing i noticed in wisconsin in this newer place that i was hunting this year is that I took the same approach I think that you did in, in trying to be very cautious and and really trying to watch how I was accessing and when I would access certain areas, trying to pick rain days if I could to, to get into an area, trying to come in from different locations so that I'm not just walking the same trail multiple times if I do go through the same area. Uh, but when I look back at the trail camera data that I gathered this year, and I guess specifically through the month of October and November, there'd be times when, when say like a coyote would walk through or a black bear would walk through and, you know, a couple hours later, a deer would walk through behind it. Uh, or, or you might have a hunter walk through just randomly, like he was scouting or whatever. And then the next day there's deer coming through and they basically act, would act like, like nothing had happened. And I thought that was odd. And what I think it might be is that if like some of those events that would happen, you know, they smell the ground scent and maybe they treat it as some kind of like a transient event. Like they have coyotes and bears, like obviously all the time, they don't have any wolves, but I mean, those, those critters are not very consistent in their patterns and neither is a guy who's just walking through scouting. But if a guy would, were to come through and hunt the same stand over and over again, then obviously they would react to that. So I, I wonder if maybe the difference between what you're seeing and what I saw in this particular property might just be that, perhaps whatever is keeping them in that area is, is maybe, I guess, strong enough of a, an attracting factor that they don't feel like they have to relocate. Um, or perhaps they feel like for whatever reason, 
the threat is just low enough level that they don't feel like they, they really need to relocate. Yeah, I think it's 100% an individual stimulus response. Um, I've got coyotes and bears that go through my – walk right through my scrapes every week. And my some of my best bucks pay no attention to coyotes and bears, unless it's a grizzly. Then it's different. But as soon as the mountain lions and the wolves start showing up, those deer – in the mountains that I hunt know what kills their ass easy. And it's coyote, it's mountain lions and wolves. That's what is a big threat to them. So like you were talking about the threat, I do believe they differentiate threats based on negative stimulus from their past life, everything they've, they've encountered in their lifetime versus what, yeah, it's just a coyote. You know, I've watched my deer run coyotes off. The deer in this country up here, big bodied, they're brutes, they're survivors, they're just mountain tough. And I've literally watched big does run a coyote off, try to stomp it in the ground. Hmm. Um, so I know I know what the bucks do to them. They don't even, my bucks don't even get nervous hardly around a coyote other than they'll pick their head up, and if the coyote gets close, they'll jog off. But I, I've literally watched a big mother doe in this country with fawn go after a coyote and try to beat it into the ground with her hooves, like try to get to it, but coyote left again now mountain lion comes in totally different story all of my deer and i run just just to be fair to the audience every one of my locations has a minimum of two cameras a lot of times three if it's a big deer it's three cameras i always hang one camera high to overview everything for intel and then i hang a low, lower level, eye level video camera that runs 30 to 60 seconds of video constantly. So I pick up all kinds of information and then I always hang a picture camera low too. So I'm getting three different perspectives of the scenario that's playing out there daily. So I have learned and really watched how the deer in the mountains react differently to, like you said, different threats. Some threat, black bears don't even bother my deer, literally don't bother them a bit. I can have a black bear come through and kill the best buck I'm hunting three or four hours later. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I guess it makes sense because when you think about black bears don't usually take down full grown deer fawns, maybe a different story, but, but yeah, they probably don't, an adult yeah. deer probably doesn't perceive a black bear as much of a threat. They really don't because the black bears go into hibernation out here before the bucks get run down and tired. And the black bears in this country, we have so many huckleberries and different types of berries that they eat on at all. What they do is the black bears in this country eat elk calves and moose calves and some fawns early in the spring. And as soon as the berries pop up all summer, we got berries everywhere. We have lush vegetation in northern Idaho. Then the black bears just eat berries like you wouldn't believe. So you're right. They're not much of a threat. And by the time they would start getting hungry or maybe start bothering a run down deer, they're hibernated. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So, so perhaps, yeah, mm-hmm. maybe what we're saying is, you know, that's, that's the reason that whatever we're seeing on trail cameras just aren't really that big of a threat to the average deer. Maybe if, uh, if you got a guy who's, who's, uh, walking into the same route over and over to the same tree stand, then that's probably something to key in on a lot more than, than if, uh, 
you got some guy who's just wandering and he happens to wander through an area and then doesn't come back for another several weeks. Yeah, I'll, I'll add more to that. During hunting season, the old mature bucks know exactly what the hell a human scent is in their area one time, three, two times, three times. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. During the summer, when the logging crews are working in the woods and the foresters are out walking the woods, and in the summer, my all of my deer act completely different, and they'll come back to an area to a camera in the daylight completely different. The older deer know when it's on. They know when they're being hunted versus just human intrusion berry pickers or hikers, if that, if you will. As soon as it gets into hunting season and the boom, boom sticks start firing off and the intrusion of way more people's into the woods, they know what's up. They know that it's time to be real careful. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. And they do. They're savvy to it. As soon as they go hard horn in this country, they know the game is on. And it's like I see it in their behavior as soon as they go hard horn. They know they're being hunted. So, yeah, you know, we're just playing that, always playing the game of trying to get a step ahead of a buck that's five or six years old that has pretty much outsmarted and or just outmaneuvered the pressures of what's trying to kill him. Yeah. So let's, <laughs> let's say, Fun stuff. <laughs> so let's say you have a sort of scenario out. You have a deer, you know, his area, you you've identified this as a deer I want to go after, you know, from your previous scouting where the community scrape is and to try and put some context or perspective in it. If you have a community scrape that's on say a bench on the side of a mountain, is it more common that you have that buck bedded up above that community scrape and elevation that he'll come down to it? Or will he be bedded on the same elevation and, and cover lateral ground to get to that scrape? Or is it more common that he'll bed beneath it and climb up the hill to get to that, that, uh, scrape? That's a good question. When, uh, when bucks in this country do not have any roads above them, like accessible roads, logging roads, then they'll usually bed above. When you get into country that's broken up and this logging country out here has immense networks of logging roads into the country. So you got to kind of play that game, but the bucks will play to the most favorable location for them to avoid, you know, being harmed. So if that scrape is out on a bench and there's no road above them that brings human intrusion from in on top of them, they'll almost always bench higher. Yes. And you know, you ask me, you know, when I get a buck, I want to go after the truth is I usually have to go find his summer feeding area and his summer, what I call his summer hideout where he's avoiding predators and he's just hiding out and he's just eating as much as he can. And he's not moving much in the daylight at all. He's not moving very far. He's got everything he wants close and he's got a great, he's got great security cover. I have to go to them. I have to go find them. I have to get in their face, so to speak, find them. And what I do is I go in, I build a big scrape where I believe he's bedding close to me. And that elicits the response from the buck to come and check that scrape. And I'll throw something, I'll throw a scrape at him. that's real close to where he's hanging out living in the summer just to initiate a response from him to come and check it. And what I usually see with my old mature bucks when I locate them and locate their bedding area 
is he'll find that scrape and look at it. And I build it extremely authentic to what a community scrape would look like if it's been there for decades. And I'll put multiple deer profile urines in it so that he smells more than one deer urine in it. And the licking branch, I sculpt it like a, like it's a piece of artwork. So I really make it look like it's been there forever. And he's used to seeing a few of those types of scrapes that he really keys in on. And when I put it right in his lap, he'll always start, he'll come and inspect it. He'll smell it. He'll come and check it. He'll visualize Once he sees it, you know, the video camera evidence is incredible when they first find him. They'll literally walk in and I always, and I've said this in many podcasts, but I see it in the expression on, in his eyes and on his face is he'll see that thing. He'll see that scrape. And it's almost like he wonders how he missed it, you know, because he lives there. And all of a sudden I've introduced this to him and I'm probably within two or three or 400 yards of where he's really hiding out all summer. And that's kind of what they do. And anyway, I'll place that. And then I work on those bucks and yes, they do tend to be higher in elevation. So what I use is the thermals. When I place a scrape, say out on a bench, like you're talking about, or when I find one, those thermals carry that scent to those bedded bucks all day. And trust me, I use that wind current and those thermals to really lay my scent out to try to get to their nose. So you'll have, you'll be basically as close as you can putting that scrape to like directly underneath where you think he's bedding so that the thermals basically carry that scent right up to him. Yeah. The thermals in the mountains will carry uphill at angles. Um, you got to get right into the area on foot and you have to experience how the thermal pushes up through the contour of the mountains, depending on where you're at. If you're on a ridge and a, in a flat on a bench, if you're on a side hill, I've killed bucks in every scenario. And what the common ground or the common thing that I'm looking for is will the scrape that I lay down or the scrape that I discover does it or will it elicit plenty frequent daylight movement to that licking branch in the early season? And it's always interesting for me to see when I lay one down, how many doe family groups do I have close enough that will usually move, not always, but usually come up in elevation a ways to inspect it and start using it. Almost always what happens is within a week, I'll have three to five deer that find it. Even if I put it out in April or May or even February or March, depending on if I'm hunting migrational deer or deer that stay, depending on the elevations. But all that to say, when I lay one out and I put it on the ground and I build it, um, deer find them very quickly. And it's because of the way I, it's because of what I offer the deer based on scent and a visual. It's just like trapping. I'm literally trapping whitetails, but I'm not catching them in a foothold. I'm using scent biology to get them to come and inspect my, this spot where they think other deer are living and it's deer that they've never smelled before, but they want to get to know them and they get really curious about what deer or deer, several deer are all of a sudden in their territory. So when you put these scrapes up, then these initial box scrapes in 
early season, close to where you think those bucks are betting. Are you trying to hunt them right away, or are you just placing those scrapes purely from an informational standpoint to see what you can get on camera and kind of learn how the, the, the doe groups, what what's in the area, and, and how that buck treats that mock scrape? Exactly. I'm, tr- I'm getting inventory. I want to know who's living in the area. I want to know if the shooter that I'm after, if I can get, if I'm close enough to him to get him in daylight early season and, or if I don't have a shooter that I know of in the area, but I just think the location is perfect for habitat elevation, the right wing currents that really are favorable for a big deer to survive. Yeah. I'm wanting to know who's living in that general area. Absolutely. So it's all about inventory. It's all about trying to find the caliber of buck I'm after. And I'll run a scrape for two or three years in some places just because I get a caliber of young buck that I can see will turn into potentially a superstar. Or, bam, right off the bat, I pick up a big one. So, you know, and you don't always pick a big one up, but I have refined my um, skills over the years to where a lot of times when I go in, I've been pretty decent, pretty strong at picking up where I believe a big deer is hiding out. It's been pretty good to me, especially I'd say the last decade, I just really keep working at my craft at getting better at locating those deer initially, even in the, you know, late spring, early summer. And then, and then if I find a big one, I, it's all game plan. And I usually can hunt those big deer and count on being able to hunt them the whole month of September in their summer hideouts. And then a lot of times I got to move and move with them to be, to stay on them into October, November, December. And throughout that month of September, when you're hunting them, is it, I mean, you put the scrape out and you set the cameras and then is the first time you're checking that early season mock scrape that you just put out roughly a month later, or do you come in a little bit earlier uh, after you put that out to see what that initial response is in those scenarios and start hunting them then? Say that again. I I don't quite understand what you're asking me there. Yeah. So when, when you would, first initiate one of those earlier season mock scrapes are you still waiting like say april or may like april, oh, that like april early. or may okay so, well i'm, I'm saying okay. like, yeah I, I guess maybe i was misunderstanding i was thinking when you were putting those mock scrapes out for inventory i was thinking that was something you're doing in like august or september but but that is earlier in the year oh, you put no, those no, out no, no, no. oh no heck no i'm trying to kill a deer in september okay so that makes more sense august is, yeah and august is you better have your shit together and your di- you better have everything dialed in August before, you know, if I'm still trying to find a buck in August, I'm not very good at what I'm doing. You know what I mean? Yep. So for me, it's way back February, March, April, May. That's when I'm laying out really trying to uh, anticipate and predict where I believe based on all of the information I've found on foot all the past information I have over the years, uh, all the information I just look for in the habitat and all the different combinations of what I need. When I lay those mock scrapes out back in the spring and even late winter, I go back to them and I start checking them once a month in May, June. And they better pick something up by July. I'll give them till the end of July. They usually pick something up good by July. So to answer your question, uh, you know, then it's whether or not I got something potential that I really want to hunt that I put a lot of time into, or 
if I just got some great up and comers, I just run a camera and keep the scrape going through the year just for them. And I may not even hunt that spot for two or three years till I get a buck in there that I like, but I like the genetics in there. How often would you say then for those scrapes that you're putting, you know, in those, well, I guess, let me, let me backtrack to make sure I'm understanding uh, correctly too, is when you're talking about these scrapes that you're putting up, are you putting those scrapes up in locations that are going to continue to be, you know, at their hottest, let's say like during the pre-rut, um, rut timing, uh, or are you putting these scrapes also in locations that maybe are, are closer to the box bed, but, but he might relocate closer to doe groups and he might be having like two different sets of scrapes that you're monitoring one for like September timeframe and one for like October, November timeframe. Yeah. I can run into both of those scenarios. What I really like and what happens about 50% of the time is I'm able to place a mock or find an existing that I can overmark that overlaps a big buck that I want to kill his core summer and even a lot into his fall bedding area. And again, some of my some of my old mature bucks are homebodies. They don't ever move on me. Some of them move a bunch, and so it's really dependent upon the individual buck. So I, that has to be played into the factor. And I really, again, try to low position scrapes where I get the doe family groups core areas overlapping with the fringes of that mature buck's core living area. And I'll place those scrapes where if you drew those circles on a map, the edges of those circles overlap a little bit. And I'll place them right there. And usually I'll pick up what I want from those, and I'll get the buck I really want to hunt that's monitoring that scrape too, even in the summer. You know, I'm walking through it, knowing that the does are down below him, but working their way. A lot of times it's does working uphill, not always, but a lot of times, and my buck working down slope. Now, it's not always that way. I've had big bucks move up out of big timber canyons. I mean, I play every scenario based on what the terrain feeds me and how the bucks in the area and the does in the areas are using it. But the majority of the time, my bucks are above the scrape, and my does are somewhere kind of close or below it in elevation, but they'll work up to it. Yes, and then I also run into the other scenario where I'm crowding a bedding area of a buck that always moves, say, in October, and I'm trying to kill him in, I try to kill him at his September area that he's feeding in and living in and surviving in in the early season. And he still has some does around that will adhere to and check that community scrape too that I either found or built. And then, yes, I have to build another set of traps for him in other places to try to catch him later in the year when he moves to go do his kind of traditional breeding areas that he likes to hit and those are the toughest bucks to kill in the mountains ones that do a bunch of moving they'll move two or three times in a four-month period and they'll move big they'll make big moves you know those are the toughest to kill so does that answer your question yeah that answers it exactly um how, how often do you do you not even say need to build a mock scrape because there's already a really good one there and you can just kind of leverage the you know the decades worth of of use to say this is a good spot but i'll put my cameras right here the uh 
those are like a gold mine. And I, and I would say just from lots of years of running mountains and putting so many miles in, a lot of times I find them when I'm shed hunting right now. And it's just from gridding mountains and pick, you know, covering a mountain mile by mile by mile, every 20 yards, you know, I'll do mile long, two mile long walks, drop down 20, 30 yards and walk two or three miles back and do the same thing all day. But anyway, when I find what I consider in the mountain buck uh, habitat, a gold mine, it's when I find those unbelievable. I've got one that's just unreal. I've got a community scrape that I know when I found it, you could just see decades and decades of use. And the location was just unbelievable. It all made sense. Um, And that's a scrape where every year there's a tree stand that never needs to leave that spot. There's a stand site that I have, and it's just unbelievable. Every year you can go back and hunt that stand. And I've got the stands. I I really work on bulletproof stand sites at entrance and exits also. Because there's times where you got to put four, five, six, seven days of hunting a big deer to get him to catch you to catch a mountain buck. And it's because a mountain buck's frequency in the daylight anywhere is a lot less uh, frequent than, say, when I hunt the Midwest deer that are coming to a destination food source. So you do have to put more time in out here. So that's forced me to dial in like almost bulletproof stand site setups that don't ruin the spot anyway, to back up and to get back on that incredible gold mine existing community scrape. When I find one, it's unreal. What traffic you get in there at the right times of the year and and really through the whole season, but it really picks up in mid October all the way through the first week of December it's just incredible the footage and the amount of bucks and the amount of does that will travel a long distance to be a part of that community identity scrape area, especially when the rut gets close. Yeah. I, I actually tried making a mock scrape last year in this newer area and I, I tried putting it out. I, I think it was August and I, I went through the whole, you know, took a stick and, and made a big, you know, car hood sized scrape in a, a place that had a good overhanging licking branch. I even added, you know, tied a, another branch overhanging it to make it look nice and good, put the camera up and did get a few pictures on it. And then, you know, mid October is like, man, it's just not as many pictures, not as many deer hitting as I thought there would be. So I went in to go check it. And what I found is that, you know, I placed it in a good spot because I'd scouted that area and had seen sign and had seen scrapes in years prior, but for whatever reason, they, they kind of ignored the one I made and 20 yards off the camera, just where that trail is out of sight. There was, you know, probably three scrapes that were just torn up, just look like the ones that I had made, but a little bit different. You know, the, the licking branches had a little bit different style to them. A lot more of like the yep. little wispy fine uh, branches more so yep. than just kind of like the big ones. So I think that may have been yep. part of it uh, for sure. And then probably yep. part of it also was that they just, we're maybe so much more comfortable using that normal travel route that what I was asking to do was maybe having to try to deviate a little bit too far from the normal, normal routes. Yeah. I think that's a good assessment. I, you said a couple of things in there that the deer will always tell you what they want and what they like. You got to pay attention to it. So when I, 
guys will ask me, you know, from all over the country, Troy, how do I build this scrape? I tell them, go into your woods, go in and put boots on the ground and find a true long-standing traditional community scrape and dissect it with your eyes. Take pictures of it, really study it. Give the deer in the area that you're hunting exactly what they're used to and what they like, what they favor. And because I hunt such huge areas and different, I hunt different stands of timber, different species of timber, depending on the elevation I'm at. I hunt different species of brush. And depending on where I'm laying out a trap line of scrapes or a scrape or two or whatever I'm doing, I always give the deer based on what I found from my scouting on the ground before I ever build a scrape. I know what that area, the type, I know what the area, the deer in that area, I know exactly what they prefer as far as species of timber or species of a brush or anything to build the scrape out of. I know what they like. And the only reason you, the only way you learn that is to go break the area down first. You know, and really pay attention to what, because the deer will tell you everything you want to know if you pay attention to it. Yeah. You know, when I'm walking through the woods, I'm just constantly looking at everything and studying every little minute detail of how the deer use the area and what they prefer to nibble on, what they prefer to scrape on, what they prefer to rub their forehead on. I mean, I'm really paying close attention to it. And another thing I do at every one of my community scrapes, and I find this a lot, I build mock rubs. You know, that forehead gland between their eyes is their main scent communicator. And they rub their foreheads all over rubs. So not only do I build a community scrape, I put four or five rubs in it, everyone, to make it look like it's a hot area. There's a lot going on there. And when a buck first finds it, he looks at it, just he sees those rubs, he sees that scrape, he sees that licking branch. And I'm telling you, it's biological. It's ingrained in those old bucks to see all that and know that stuff's going down there. That's important. Yeah. I guess matching the hatch is definitely, definitely seems like it's pretty key. It is. And it's, I think it's matching the hatch is a perfect, you know, uh, analogy. Give them exactly what they want based on what they tell you. So on these types of scrapes that you find or, or build either one that are these big community style scrapes. How, how consistent are you seeing activity? And, and the reason I ask this is, um, mid October last year, I went on a scouting trip with a bunch of cameras and I just, it, the, the woods had the, like the switch had just flipped and the sign was everywhere. And I just made a big route, big loop, and out of, you know, like the 30, whatever odd scrapes that I came across, I, I picked the biggest ones and the, the ones that look like most likely to be community style scrapes, or at least the ones that were bigger than average and had a lot of deer sign and rubs around them. I, I probably put out five mm-hmm. or six cameras and it seemed like, but amongst all those cameras that I then monitored, I would get bucks that would eventually make their way onto all the cameras. You know, they'd be hitting all the scrapes, but you very rarely would have any one deer do the same thing twice. You never have the same buck kind of come through and hit the same scrape two days in a row. You know, maybe he'd come in on one scrape one day and he's going one direction. And then the next 
time you see him, it's three days later and he's coming from the same direction, but it's in like the afternoon versus the morning. So it'd be like almost impossible just based off the picture to try and defer or infer where he was betting. Um, and even, I guess the, the camera that was the most active just for a numbers perspective over a 28 day period, I had bucks in daylight, 23 out of those 28 days. And I think three of the three individual of those bucks I would consider mature. One of them was the one I ended up shooting. So like that one now, now I know in hindsight, I just need to put a camera on that scrape and I don't need to bother with the other ones because they're all going to show up on that camera anyway. But, but I guess to go back to my original question, is that normal to see just kind of the, almost like a randomness to when and which deer are hitting those scrapes on certain days? When you find a true hub community, every deer in the drainage teaches their young to know where it's at type scrape. That's the scrape that you want the camera on. I would, I would say I pass up 50 scrapes the deer lay down to maybe a hundred between 50 and a hundred scrapes. And let's say I walk for 12 or 13 hours in a day, daylight till dark. And I'll come across on that long day of walking all day long and breaking down country. And I mean, it's, it's a long day. Let's say I come across 50 different scrapes, lots of them on little logging roads and little scrape lines and just random little scrapes. The first thing I do when I look at a scrape is I look for the evidence of it being there for decades. If it doesn't show me that, then I don't even bother. And when I start seeing the evidence, if this thing's been here a lot, then I immediately look around. And, you know, I'm already doing that anyway, but I really am studying the terrain, the topograph, the topography of the ground, why it's funneling all the deer right here, the habitat that's right there right now in my face. Is it close to bedding? Is you know, am I in a great location where there could be bucks bedded here versus does all around me? I, I just start breaking all that down in my head. And then if it has the, if it shows me, if that scrape shows me the, the ground evidence that it's been there forever, the, the licking branch evidence, then, and only then will I hang a camera on it. So to answer your question, it sounds like to me, with all the scrapes that you saw, you did identify the one that the majority of the deer will check on a more frequent basis. Is that true? Yeah, I'd say that's the case. I think part of it too is that that particular scrape was right on the edge of a pond. And and I guess okay. between between the pond and where a point off the mainland kind of dumped in and, and meets at that same location. So okay. within that little 10-yard... Ten yard area. There was, I'd say three three scrapes. Some of which were larger than others, but historical rubs, uh, lots of licking branches. And the one that I thought they were going to hit when I first right. found the spot didn't really seem to get hit as hard. But then there was a different one that just got pounded for whatever reason. And within right. within a hundred yards, there's probably ten other scrapes. But it seemed like that was, I guess, the that hub. The, the hub that was the one. But I also yeah. wonder. Maybe that it wasn't the primary, maybe it was, maybe it wasn't the, the, the primary scrape of that area, but it certainly was the one that, that had the strongest topographical pinch point that the, all the deer that were going through there had to, had to basically pass by. Right. Exactly. A lot of times, uh, for me personally, when I actually find a great community that's been a scrape, a hub scrape that's been there forever, um, it's because 
the terrain, the food, the water, everything plays into it to funnel the deer through a specific spot. So it just becomes a, you know, a really good intersection, if you will. And in my scenario, in the vast mountains and woods, you want to talk about a needle in a haystack. It's ridiculous. But when you do find one, the evidence will be there. And those are the ones I key in on. And again, if I don't, if I don't have good daylight frequency there, and if I don't have the right kind of bucks or at least the genetics of young bucks there, and I don't see any potential there, then I'll move on. But usually most of the time, because I am fairly remote and I do get off the beaten path and I do look, I do a pretty darn good job of finding where old whitetail bucks like to hang out and survive. I tend to do pretty good. And a lot of times I'm fairly close to their bedding and I usually end up getting a dandy or two on camera with them, but it's a lot of work. There's a lot of scrapes that have never panned out for me and I just move on. Uh, but again, I'm also that really patient guy. If I've got a two-year-old buck, two-and-a-half-year-old, and I know he's already pretty much moved into the area, he kind of wants to stay around here, or i got a three-and-a-half-year-old that I can just see is going to be a superstar, I'll run a scrape on purpose for him for two to three years and just let him grow up on it and then go hunting when he reaches that maturity level that I'm looking for, which is a lot of fun to do too. Yeah. Well, I can definitely tell you, I'll put, I'm putting a camera back on that spot for sure this year. Cause there's, <laughs> there's three other, three other bucks on that camera, apart from the one I ended up shooting that I probably would have shot if they would have given me an opportunity. Cause they were, they were all nice bucks for the area. Um, and, and if they, yeah. if they, you know, even if two of them survived, like they're going to be really nice next year. Yeah. And you're, all you're doing is trapping the whitetails. You're trapping them with scent biology and you're conditioning them to use a favorable place for you to hunt them down the road, which makes a ton of sense to me. Even if it's a two or three year investment, the, you know, the, the payback can be exceptional. And I've, I've had some of my, my great, some of the best bucks I've ever killed. Uh, I've had on a scrape for two and three and four years before I ever even went in to hunt them. I waited till a lot of my bucks, I wait till they're six. Why? Because I got a better buck I'm hunting when they're five. It's a lot of fun. It's extremely intriguing to trap these whitetails, to use scent to just get them to condition. And again, a lot of bucks I have to move with too. It's, it, every buck is different. Every buck has his own demeanor. Um, I know we're not supposed to say the word personality, but they're just like every dog you've ever owned or raised. Every one of them is different. Every one of them has a temperament, a demeanor. And I really, truly believe people don't give whitetail bucks or like my lab. I trust him more than a lot of humans. <laughs> and he's smart as a whip. Now, is he a human? No. But these old whitetail deer and the does too, they learn to associate a lot of things with danger and what keeps them safe. And they get it figured out, you know, and it's all stimulus response. And they have a pretty good memory on certain things that really bother them. And, and they also find those old hermit bucks in the big country, in the big woods out here, they find places to live where they don't get bothered much. And they always have an incredible wind advantage where they bed up for the day. And they use the thermals and the prevailings to protect them. They'll bet on one side of the ridge some days and on the other the other day based on the prevailing and how it mixes with the thermal. So it, it's a, it's 
to me, just extremely interesting. Yeah, and and I can definitely see how when you talk about needing that bulletproof setup and access route, I mean, yep. in the context yep. of that, that scrape that we talked about that I found a, a little bit earlier, right in the edge of a pond, if I can access via the pond, which I can't in that scenario, yep. but hypothetically, if I were able to access from that pond with a wind, you know, day wind that's kind of blowing generally toward the direction of that lake and falling thermals that would yep. also drop down toward that lake, you just pop up, get on dry ground, climb the first tree three yards off the water edge. And as long as you got yep. that safe wind direction, you can hunt that thing over and over and over again. Um, yeah, absolutely. That's and, bulletproof. Something like that. When you have that wind, but when you have that wind advantage for you, and you have that barrier, that ge- that geographical barrier, terrain barrier that protects you, that you're exactly right. And the stands that I set always employ some type of advantage for me on entrance, exit, and some type of terrain-based barrier that helps me out with usually three quarters of the winds that I try to hunt deer on. And, and I'm an edge wind hunter. Anyway, I hunt, I always give a buck everything he wants. I give him a wind that he likes a wind that he'll approach on. And I always come in from the side of that and always hunt him right off the edge of that wind. And I hunt pretty high. If, if you have a deer that's, let's say that your, your ridge is, there's no logging road on top. Right. So the deer could be bedded up higher okay. and, and you've, you've right. got this bench that you've got your, your scrape on that you're going to hunt. I'm assuming then you're accessing from the bottom yeah. and are you ideally accessing up just like a, you know, thick, you know, steep little cut or ravine in that mountain. And you're just climbing up through that thing that the deer won't, don't want to cross through until it just kind of ends. Once you get to that bench and as soon as you, even before you climb up onto that bench, you may be climbing up a tree on the the downhill side of it, but getting up really high so that once those thermals do flip, you're basically, you know, your, your whole scent profile is never really hitting that bench where the scrape's at. Yeah. I, I completely avoid my human scent, even though my scrape's 15 to 25 yards away, somewhere in that range. I completely avoid my human odor ever blowing out over that scrape, if you will, towards a buck's entrance where he's going to come from. So let's say he is bedded up slope. I set up almost all of my setups on the biggest, the oldest deer I hunt. I locate where they're bedding. And I learned that from my trail camera evidence, the video evidence of them coming in to address the scrape. So the first thing I do is dissect all the video and trail camera evidence I have to get the direction and the trails he's really using. And again, remember I talked about setting that one camera way back and just seeing everything. Mm-hmm. You put that on 60 second video with a 64 gig card in it. You want to learn a lot about a deer. You can literally, you know, and I hang uh, old man's beard all over in front of my cameras, my video cameras. So I always have a windicator. So I'm watching anytime he comes in with a windicator in the view of showing what the wind's doing, including what the thermal's doing with that windicator blowing in the camera picture. And I watch how he enters and exits. It doesn't matter if it's morning, night, daylight, doesn't matter. I really pay attention how that individual buck plays the wind. And then I just break him down from there. What his weaknesses is, how he's entering. 
And I rarely, because of uphill and downhill thermals, come in from the bottom. I usually, in the mountain country, come in from the least impactful side. I get up to elevation and then come across side hilling, so to speak, and slide into a tree stand from the the least predominant uh, wind that's going to blow ever across my scrape to the bedding, if that makes sense. Because thermals will kill you if you come straight up under a scrape or come straight down on top. The thermals will get you. Even if you walk down and your residual scent blows later in the day. Um, I will use terrain-based features that big deer don't, that try to avoid to come in, like come in from the side on an old skid trail that's too open for a buck to want to walk in. And I'll get into the heavy, thick timber on a bench and have him be on me on purpose because I know where he beds. He'll be out beyond me and I'll never cross his wind. I'll never cross his wind tunnel that's blowing at him. Even when he gets to the scrape, I'm always off to the edge. I always come in from the side. I never come in underneath him, if you will. And I never come in right down on top of him or you ruin it. It's always, it's always a side approach on a hillside or a mountain, usually. Almost always. Gotcha. So he's usually, it sounds like then, coming in not necessarily directly from above or below, but he's coming in at some kind of an angle. And, and usually the winds yeah. themselves combined with the thermals are at some kind of an angle to the hill, not always perfectly straight up and down. Right. Yep. Yeah, and, and I'm, I'm using that 45-degree angle that he'll take and work his way down off the hill. And, and even the bucks that come straight down at my scrape, I'm never setting, ever setting right above or right below a scrape. You can't do that with thermal. You always have to be off to the side that's your safest side with a wind barrier. And there's a lot of times I kill a big buck and my wind's missing him by 15 yards, 20 yards. That's it. Now, if he were ever to loop around and come in on my entrance trail behind me, it usually doesn't happen because I have his bedding figured out. And I have him figured out in a way that I purposely set up to where I can come in from that, again, that side approach that's the least, gives me the least chance of ever having a wind blow out over my entrance across the scrape and up into the mountain. I'm always off to the edge, and I usually have, like a lot of my stand sets are kind of like you talked about that water. I'll have a big ravine behind me that a lot of times I'll come in from the side, drop down in a big ravine right by my stand, climb up it and pop up in the tree. I'll have a canyon or a draw in the mountains, you know, a deep ravine or a creek back behind me. Um, something that kind of deters and steers deer away from wanting to go down through that steep ravine and up it when they can just walk up that nice flat bench and then get on that nice ridge. You know, if you follow me there. Yeah. Yeah. So I think I'll take the extra hard, I'll take the extra hard route in always to, uh, not allow any of my human odor to ever cross his nose, even if he's 20 yards away from me on his approach. And that's from scouting. I wouldn't know that if I didn't lay out the cameras early, get him on a summer pattern using that licking branch and addressing it and being, I have to be close to him too. I mean, you're not killing these big deer ever unless you're in their bedroom early. You got to be close, which is another, you know, that's a whole topic a guy could spend an hour talking about. 
Yeah. Yes, I think the the stand placement sounds pretty similar to what I was envisioning in my mind, but it sounds like the access to get to that stand location, I was probably a little bit off on. That makes makes sense the way you describe it. If you have thermals that blow uphill, you cannot come in above or below them. You got to come in from the side that they least use, if that makes sense. So, what about the the prevailing wind for that day? You know, if your if your thermals are going up, and, and I realize yep. that in the mountains like that, they're much stronger of an updraft from the thermal than I would yep. see like in hills around me. So, yeah, you got that strong thermal going up, but then. You know, if the deer is going to be coming likely from like, let's say the West, you know, generally, does it matter what the the day wind is doing? Like I imagine you'd you'd obviously don't want to come from the East, but what's more, most common. That's a great question. The day wind speed, and you have to decipher this in every place you hunt, but the day prevailing wind speed has to be strong enough to override or dominate the prevailing or excuse me the thermal so the the prevailing wind speed has to be strong enough to override the thermal a lot of times my thermals are so powerful in the mountains that if the prevailing wind that day is below five miles per hour guess what dominates my wind direction all day the thermals so I play that game every day, looking at the wind speed, looking at the prevailing wind direction. If it's coming out of the west, and I get a lot of south and west um, winds, a lot, even into the late season. I get a lot of winds off the Pacific Ocean. So I'm getting a lot of west, a lot of southwest, a lot of south. You know, I'm coming in from the east quite often on my big deer. And what I'm doing to paint a better picture for the listeners is I'm positioning that mock scrape kind of at a 45-degree angle towards him so that the thermal can drift up the hill and still get some scent to him. And when it gets up on a higher flat face, a lot of times that wind will go uphill and then bend out around and kind of do a J-hook through a big kind of a draw and then over into a flat. I'm coming in, say, from the east, the wind's blowing out of the west towards me. The thermal's working uphill and like water running up through the draws and up the mountain, and it'll bend around a little bit. I'll come in at that tree stand elevation from a mile or half a mile back at least, and then side hill over a lot of times because he's west of me and he's above me. And my tree stand setup will usually always have a terrain-based barrier that protects him from ever really wanting to walk way over past the scrape and down through a ravine and over on an open logging road that's in the wide open. I'll come in, like, say, that's just an example of one of my stands that I have that's really good. And when I, when I come in, I'm walking in a spot he doesn't like to walk. It's too open, even though it's not real open to what a lot of people would consider open. It's too open for a mountain buck. I get in that stand, coming in from the east, I've got the prevailing at least at a 45 across me, and I've got a thermal pushing up towards him. So I kind of get that mix of wind pushing up out in front of me, prevailing kind of pushing back towards me. And what will happen is, is if it's a morning hunt, he'll use that morning thermal to come down and check that scrape, or even midday he'll use the thermal if it's strong enough 
And as long as my prevailing wind doesn't override the thermal, he'll ride that thermal all the way into that scrape on a 45. And I'll be just back beyond where he can pick up any of my wind, my scent from the thermal. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's painting a pretty pretty clear picture, I think. Cause... Yeah, I'm <laughs> sitting back to where the thermal's literally carrying my scent up on up the mountain too, but he's out beyond me. I get eyes on him coming, working his way down at a, you know, working his way down. And a lot of these mountain bucks will work with a 45 wind in their nose, 45 degree angle, or at least cross that thermal. They'll, ang- they'll angle at a 45 down through an uphill thermal. If it's an evening approach and the thermal switches in that last hour of daylight, what a lot of my big deer do if they're higher than me is they'll come down and I've still got that west wind pushing back towards me and the thermal switch and go downhill. What they'll do is they'll come down at that 45 off that elevation. They'll J hook down below the scrape to pick up that downhill thermal right in the evening and then they'll walk right up under that scrape and I'm back 20, 30 yards and my evening thermal has switched on me, but I'm far enough back off to the side of that thermal that my evening thermal's dropping down that draw right behind me. Mm-hmm. Does that make, is that clear? Yeah. yeah. And he just misses me in the terrain. The terrain is what saves me because there's a big draw. I'm sitting five yards up on a flat bench and there's a steep, deep canyon or draw right behind me. That's just covered in timber. And it just sucks my wind down that draw that the evening thermal does. So the bulletproof setup allows me to hunt a morning thermal, an evening thermal and most prevailing wind. Now, if I get up that morning and there's a wind straight out of the East, at seven, eight, nine, ten miles an hour, and it's going to blow across the back of my head, blow through the scrape, blow right up the mountain directly at him, then i got to be careful. I probably won't hunt that. But if it's just a morning thermal that goes straight up the mountain at a 45 across my face, a little more of a 45, not right over the back of my head, but across my face instead, then I'll hunt it. But a lot of it, wind speed is huge, and I don't think people that hunt thermals consider the wind speed of the day when they decide to go hunt their stand. They just think about uphill, downhill thermals and prevailing wind. Well, thermals will override a weak prevailing wind every time, but a heavy prevailing wind will a lot of times cause straight up wind swirls, which if it's swirling, I don't even go in, especially on a big deer. I just leave. I don't even, if I start to walk in and I, weather forecaster wasn't right and they're not always right and my prevailing isn't working right and i start to feel swirls two or three or four hundred yards away i just back out i'll leave go on a different stand so if the prevailing wind is lighter for the day even to the point where you might lose it at certain points then the thermals are going to be the the thermals are going to be be it basically and yes. your bulletproof setup is still going to work. It just means that you're going to be that much closer to being picked off because he's coming in quartering from either the uphill yeah. or downhill. And, and you're just from the yeah. standpoint that you're, you're backed up a little bit, that straight up or straight down yeah. thermal is not going to, 
not going to tip them off, but it's going to be close. Whereas if you have that moderate wind yeah. pulling back, then you're just even a little bit more safer. But if that wind gets too yeah. strong, then it, either number one, it sounds like you get the swirls or number two, now the wind's really not at his advantage as much anymore. So he might not be as likely to come in. And I don't see him. Yeah. Yeah. I don't see him that day. Exactly. I won't see him that day if there's no advantage for him at all. He's got to have at least a 45, usually, usually with a mountain buck. He at least has to have a decent 45 in his nose. That's what I see. And again, to add in for your listeners, I always have a terrain-based barrier that's protecting me from, say, that buck jay hooking all the way around me. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That big, That big ravine that he doesn't need to walk over there and walk way down in that ravine and try to climb it to J-hook me. He'll just J-hook down underneath it. I got the scrape far enough out in front of me. A lot of times I'm shooting my bigger deer at 15 yards, 20 yards. I hunt real high on purpose because of the mountain thermals and, and the winds. I do hunt fairly high. Plus, the damn deer out here, man, they, they see you move at all. They'll pick you out of a tree at 15, 20 feet so easy. But I've noticed over the years, if I get my feet up to about 25 feet, I just don't seem to be in their line of straight on-site vision when it comes to movement. Now, again, I I shoot everything sitting down. I won't stand up on a big buck. When I see him coming, I always draw early. I make sure my movement is basically, and I have, I anticipate all that just based on experience. I try to read and anticipate how long I'm going to, you know, I can usually hold my bow for a minute and a half, two minutes if I need to, but I'll draw early on purpose on a big deer and just chill. And I'll just sit there and be relaxed and be a full draw. That way, when he gets real close and I really studying his body language coming in and can see that he wants, that he's going to come in, you know, if he's acting wonky, then I'm not going to draw if he's way out there and acting weird. I'm not going to do that. I mean, I've been around him enough. I can kind of tell, not kind of, I really do feel like I can tell if he's committed or not. But I'll draw early and I'll just sit there and wait. And that way I have no movement hardly at all when he gets within 20, 30 yards. And then he, if he presents me any type of great shot real close, he's, he's going to die. He's going to get killed. And that's usually the case. And I rarely take a shot at a buck over 20, 25 yards ever. It's usually fifth. It's usually seven or eight out to 22, 23 yards is what it's been almost always on my scrapes. Is, uh, are the, the tree types in those locations too? Are you usually able to hunt like evergreens that are giving you good back cover when you get that stand tucked up in there? It's incredible. I hunt big coniferous forests and, I hunt out of Doug, Douglas fir trees and I hunt out of tamaracks that you get up about 25 feet and I just make sure that's behind me. I just got a wall of green limbs and yeah, I tuck in the big Douglas firs are my favorite because I can tuck in up in their big limbs and you're literally, you just, it's an amazing web of great big limbs, the size of your arms that shoot out 10, 20 feet and they just hang everywhere. You're just setting up in a nest of great back cover, and it's yeah, it's incredible. But again, I can't remember the last time I stood up to shoot a buck because I don't want to risk it. I don't want to risk the movement. You know, the movement is what kills a lot of guys on wary deer. And I've hunted other locations across the country where deer let me hunt a lot lower, and I got away with a lot more based on their 
And what I saw is just, they just didn't seem to be as wary and as alert and as perceptive as the deer I hunt out in the mountains. Yeah, I suppose probably a lot of that has has to do maybe with those apex predators you got out there. Yeah, if you, you know, if you stop and think about what a mountain lion can do and how quiet they are and how quick they kill these deer, the mountain lions are just the ultimate hunter. Yeah, these deer literally, in this country, their head's always on a swivel, and they live by their nose because the habitat is so thick, they can probably see between 30 to 50 to 80 yards in front of them max. So they really live with their nose and their head on a swivel. And if they see movement of any type, they just, they instantly lock onto you or they just bail. They don't even stop and look at you. They just jump and run. If they, if there's a movement they don't like, and it's incredible to watch my trail camera videos, even when I'm not in the mountains and like a, a little squirrel will pop up in the background on a log and a big deer that I'm hunting, he'll about jump He'll about, you know, he'll just literally almost jump out of his skin when a squirrel pops up. And then he'll see it's a squirrel, and then he'll chill and then settle back down. <laughs> just that movement. You know, it's just ridiculous. The, what I see in, in regards to how wary these deer are, and it is 100% because of these predators. It has to be. Because humans aren't out there all the time. Right. And, and lions, lions, lions will climb up in a tree and just sit and chill so it's not like they're not used to looking up sometimes you know lions are usually on the ground lions aren't afraid to climb a tree either neither are the bears so it's just something that i have noticed if i get up about 25 feet i rarely and that's where my feet are i rarely have a deer pick me off i think a lot of it's because i draw early a lot of it's because i don't stand up you know, the only time I'll stand up and shoot a deer is if I have to shoot him like behind my tree because he's done something odd. And it, like during the rut, when a doe comes rolling through and he's chasing her, you, you know, you're going to have bucks right behind you sometimes. It just happens. Mm-hmm. So in that situation, yeah, I'll stand up and shoot one if I have to. But I also have that distraction of him, you know, of a buck chasing a doe, which I actually love those kind of distractions. And I love windy days. If I have the right prevailing wind, I love a 10 to 15 mile an hour wind it masks all my noise and i try not to make any noise but it masks all the noise in the world and i i feel like windy kind of rainy or snowy days are my favorite to catch a big deer because his senses aren't quite as acute and is tuned in when it's windy and rainy or snowy yeah i've definitely noticed that myself with with just deer hunting in general so much easier if i can get a a, a nice, you know, nice strong wind, especially in early season. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I love having that. The dead, the dead silent, no wind days. Oh my gosh. They're so hard to, to get drawn on a big bucket in this country when it's dead silent. I wear the quietest clothes I can find. I mean, I'm fleeced in the early season, lightweight stuff and no noise at all. And my bow's silent, but and it starts getting down around 10 degrees and zero degrees, and I'm hunting those late seasons with, with my uh, warm clothing on, you know. I I draw early for a reason. <laughs> yeah. And I just wait on them. I just wait on them so that I'm not moving much. So here, here's a either-or scenario for you. If you find 
one of those pre-existing community scrapes, one of those gold mine type scrapes. But yep. let's say, for instance, there's not that big terrain obstacle that's already there. Are you more likely to right. try and create that obstacle? I don't even know if it's legal, but like drop some trees, create some deadfall to create a barrier, or are you more likely to go find whatever the closest actual terrain barrier is and then go try and create a mock scrape to override or overpower the one that's already there? If, if I'm on national forest service ground, I can get a permit to cut firewood. So if there's some dead standing firewood type trees, I can create a barrier legally. I mean, I'm cutting firewood down. I just might not collect it for two decades. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yep. But you can't cut a green tree and I never would cut a green tree. I'm not going to break the law. But if I, if I can create some deadfall, I will. The truth is usually when I find one of those incredible scrapes, there's something there that works and I'll, when I find it, I first thing I do is put the cameras on it, study the heck out of it. Don't even consider where I'm going to hang a tree stand until I get true video evidence of how the deer enter exit. I'd like to get a month or two of evidence. And I'm talking about ones I find in the spring. If it's during the season, then I, you know, I have to make a quick assessment and do what I got to do. But to back up and answer your question, I like to get a lot of evidence in the late spring, early summer. If I find one of those types of scrapes based on how the wind works through there, I'll put windicators in my video, in my video setups. I'll have a windicator hanging out in front of it and I'll really watch the wind. I'll see how the deer enter and exit, how they work through the area. Then pick the general location of where that stand needs to go and how I'm going to enter and exit that specific spot. And then look around, you know, right there at the spot and say, hey, is there a little bit of an opening here? Will that help steer the deer 20 yards? You know, is there a little bit of, and the funny thing is in the forest out here with these mountain bucks and these mountain deer, something as small as a, just a little section of timber that say, I don't know, maybe you have a 30 by 30 section or a 20 by 20 section of no timber. And then there's just timber everywhere, but you got this tiny little opening. You can use that little opening enough to use as a barrier off of that scrape just to get the deer to steer around through the darker timber, if you will. So sometimes it's not a lot, but it's enough. Hmm. Or there's possibly already some blowdowns there. And the tree that I want to hang in has got blowdowns right behind it. I mean, I love it when I see a mess around, kind of around where I want to hang. Something that just the deer look at, and they, ah, we'll walk here. Of course, I'm breaking down every trail I see going into that scrape. If it's been there for decades, it's funny. The deer almost get it. The trails that are there, those deer have walked those trails so many times that they're really conditioned just to walk in on them a lot of times. So a lot of times when it's a long-standing community scrape, gold mine type scrape that I, and I don't find a lot of them, but when I do, I mean, I get pretty excited, and they produce always. Uh, there's usually something there for me that I can use and get away with and still have a bulletproof scrape. Now, I might have to be a little more careful with how many times I hunt it based on certain winds. I really like it when I can hunt a stand 75% of the winds, but some of my spots are a 50% spot. 
of wind direction and thermal. But I always try to shoot for, I can hunt this stand 75% of the different winds and thermals. That's a pretty good setup. And only a quarter of the time I have to stay out. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I shoot for. That makes sense if you can use it, you know, basically as much as you can, especially if you got that bulletproof access and, you know, you have the opportunity to get back in there a few times, however long it takes to to get it done. It always ups your odds on a big deer because big deer, big deer don't make mistakes very often. Mountain deer, the old bucks, they rarely make a mistake. They always have a wind advantage. I have never had a big mountain buck that I've killed walk in with no wind advantage. He's always at least got a quarter wind in his nose. Always, every time. Even when he's coming in behind does, he's always using the wind and off, you know, rarely do my big mountain bucks, even when they're tending to a doe and they're going to breed that doe and they're the only buck with that doe. It's funny, or it's not funny, it's incredible to watch them. The doe will just come trucking right through and doing her thing and walking through the scrape. And if I'm hunting a state like Washington where you can have a scrape and put some feet out, I make a big triangle and I spread it way out so that scrape doesn't mess with where the doe wants to eat. That big buck won't even get near the feed in the daylight. He'll stay 20, 30 yards off that doe, but he'll walk into that scrape, which is just blows my mind. But they do that in any, in any state where I've been, where I've hunted, where guys feed and where you can put feed out, he won't go to that feed, not in the daylight. In Idaho, there's no feed. So it's just playing those scrapes. And a lot of times in Idaho, I'll set up two or three giant scrapes. Because I've found, I've found that my best community scrapes I ever find have been there so long, I'll usually have a cluster of them, two or three great big scrapes that have evolved over the years, and they're all real close. Or I'll get two or three within ten yards of each other, and it just gets bloat, and you can just tell it's been there forever. Then I'll have two or three 15 yards off to the side, and I'll make a triangle out of those with my tree stand. So I just play the game. Whatever the deer tell me and show me, that's what I mimic. And if you think that you have a deer located, you you know what scrape he's going to use, you got the right wind for, let's say, five days in a row, you got a huntable wind in that spot, and it's what you consider a pretty bulletproof access, and you hunt it the first day and you don't lay eyes on that deer, you just going to continue to come back day after day after day and until hopefully he does come in or you you finally think that maybe he, he somehow caught on to you? That depends. Um, first thing I look at is how many times is he frequenting that scrape in the daylight? So let's say he's only frequenting it two or three times a week, max. I can't just go. I can't see the logic in just hunting him one time and then never going back. Let's say, like the deer I was hunting this year was truly a 185, 190 class public land giant. So what I did with him is he, I was in the game with him. He was extremely careful in early season. He wouldn't hardly move. But I had video of him eating. I had video of him hitting my licking branch. I had video of him moving through this one spot in the daylight, two or three times a week. That's not many days, but 
it's the only place that I could get him daylight and feel comfortable. And I knew I was close to him because of the timing of when he would show up. The distance to hunt him was so far away that every chance I got to go hunt him, and I think I got to hunt him six times during the month of September because he was so far from me. Literally, my work and the time I get out of work didn't play into my favor. And I had about a 50% wind opportunity there to hunt him. So basically, 50% of the winds that come, 50% of the time, or half of the winds that could possibly come through there, that's a better way to explain it, wouldn't work. Or I knew I'd blow him out. Or he'd catch on to me and then it'd just be me sitting by myself. So I only hunted him on the two winds that would work for me versus the two that wouldn't. I ended up getting to hunt him, I believe, five or six sets, and they were partial sets never said all day on him at all um even on the weekends it was he never showed in the middle of the day so i always was morning evening anyway all that to say i had no trouble at all if i had back-to-back days of a wind that would work for him and me to hunt i would hunt him now again he's only showing up there two or three times max in a week seven days and two and one time i missed him by 20 minutes on camera and another day I literally had a meeting that got called and I wasn't able to go hunting. And on that day was the other day that I could have killed him in the daylight there in the month of September. (laughs) So he started getting more careful. Other hunters started pounding into the woods. I've got the elk hunters walking the mountains, bugling elk hunters everywhere. So he started to really hold tight. So the whole month of September, I had two opportunities basically. And I got six or five or six days that I got to actually go hunting. So, so those odds are tough, mm-hmm. but did I hunt him back? Did I hunt him back to back days? Heck yes. Because I had what would work for him. And anytime you have a bulletproof stand, if you have what will work for your buck, but it also works for you and it protects you enough to where you're not going to, you don't feel like you're going to just ruin the spot. Heck yeah. I'll hunt a spot five or six times now to jump to a different deer that I killed two years ago and to the deer I killed this year, each buck was on the fifth set at those bulletproof spots that I killed him fifth, five days, five different days. And boom, killed him on the fifth day. Last two, the last two that I've killed. So I'm okay with hunting a stand more than once. Absolutely. And if a buck figures me out and, I'm honest about it. If I notice he's got me pinned, he's got me figured out, he totally changes, then I, I'll i leave that great community scrape and stand. I'll leave it set up there because I know they'll eventually come back to it if I don't just run him out of the country. And I'll grab my mobile set up and I'll move at him and I'll get closer to him. And one thing I really like to do is move 100 or two, you know, 100 yards, 150 yards of the direction I feel like he's working through to get to me. And I'll set another stand up and hunt that stand too. And I do play that game on certain bucks where I can. Okay. Yeah. So then you're just, you're never really leaving them, but you're just, you're, you're backing off and yeah, backing off on over, I'm adjusting over hunting that one spot. And I'm also, you know, if he's trying, if he's, if I think he's kind of got me figured out a little bit, I hope he thinks I'm there and I hope he's moving through the area a little different and maybe coming you know, if I think he's moving in below me, I'll go down and I'll look for tracks and I'll look for any sign of him. I'll hang another camera. I'll drop a quick little 
a good little, like a nice scrape that looks, and I'll see if I can pick him up 100 yards away, 150, 200 yards away. And I've been successful on a few bucks doing that too. What I have to be careful of, especially in the early season, we're not talking about late October, November here, but in the early season, I got to be careful not to just blow him out of the country. Right. But those moves sometimes pay off too. I killed a buck. I killed a buck in the middle of October like that. I, all I had to do was move a hundred yards on him. And I picked up where he was working through the woods just to kind of miss me because I knew he figured me out and I killed him beautiful six by six. And I killed him about a hundred yards from where I had initially been hunting. Hmm. Yeah. That seems so to I'm kind of, a, I, I would you'd say I'm a hybrid type guy. Yeah, it definitely seems I'll like hunt it. Really good. Yep. I, I'll hunt really great stands that are bulletproof. So I like to set up bulletproof spots, but I'm also mobile in that if I need to move, I'll move. And then when the rut rolls around and later in the year, I'm really hunting those high doe concentrations where my target buck is frequenting in late October through November into the, I mean, our, our rut really works good into about the 10th of December here. Huh. Yeah. a lot of bucks the first week of December. Yeah, it's yep. a, for us it's not it, – it usually doesn't stay good quite that long, but I think part of it is just due to the fact that, well, in Minnesota where I live, the uh, the shotgun season comes in right – it's usually like the first weekend in November is when the shotgun season starts. Yeah. And in Wisconsin it's usually the weekend before Thanksgiving. So there's, it's a little bit better in Wisconsin – um, but certainly in like Minnesota, as soon as you get that, some years it's like November 3rd that the firearm season starts. And, uh, I don't know what the breakdown is in, in Idaho or Washington, but the number of shotgun hunters versus bow hunters in the public around here, it's easily 10 to one, probably more, um, in terms of just numbers. Oh, it, it really makes yeah, a dr- dramatic impact on, on that running activity. Yep, same here. Uh, here's my rifle season. You'll love this. It's called Any Weapons. October 10th to December 1st. <laughs> so I am bow hunting my bucks in gun hunting country with people gun hunting. I'm in some serious security cover, and uh, I would say hard to get to. Most guys don't want to work to get to the places I'm setting up. And it is a lot of work. Yeah. Well, at least you don't have to wear blaze orange during that time period. Idaho allows you still to wear a camel. But, you know, I'm up in a tree. I'll wear an orange stocking hat in and out, even in the dark, just because, just because you never know. Uh, But, yeah, once I'm up in a tree, uh, yeah, I've I've had hunters. I've had hunters walk 30 yards from my tree stand and not even know I'm there because I hunt pretty high. You know, I had one guy, this is funny. I had one guy come in and find my scrapes, not see my cameras, not see my tree stand and hang a climber right next to my stand. <laughs> and I walked in to get to my stand and I look up and there's this guy 10 yards from my stand. I go, excuse me. He looked at me like, what are you doing here? And I said, see my stand right next to you? See all those cameras? Oh, he was embarrassed. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Climbs down and leaves. <laughs> <laughs> 
He goes, I saw these scrapes, and I just couldn't believe the scrapes here. And I didn't even <laughs> notice the cameras. <laughs> so I guess I make a pretty good-looking authentic mock scrape. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. And that's a true that's a true story. The guy was really nice. He felt bad. He's like, oh, because I had no idea. I go, yeah, I built all those scrapes. And those three cameras are I pointed him out and I said, that tree stand right there. He goes, oh, I can't even see that tree stand. It's so hidden. <laughs> but anyway, nice guy, though. If he ever, if the guy ended up listening to this, he was a super nice guy. He was super cool. He's like, he got out of there. He goes, man, I'm sorry. I do not want to hunt your all your work and set up. So he was a pretty cool dude. Yeah, I, I uh, didn't run into too many other hunters last year, which is was, was always nice. Some years is worse than others, but uh, it seems like for the most part, a lot of the other bow hunters, especially that I run into, are are usually pretty cool guys. It's it's pretty rare that you run into the guy who's yep. just, you know, not fun to be around. Right, and every bow hunter I've ever ran into in the big woods out here, knock on wood, we we have enough ground out here when we're bow hunting especially in the late season when rifles over i've never had a problem with guys that if they accidentally stumble upon your area and you're already set up in it you just have a you know a kind conversation with them and say hey i've been here a long time i've been hunting you know i ran it i had a guy walk right through my scrape this year when i was sitting down in the middle of the day checking a camera and he got like 10 yards from me and i said hey and i was <laughs> on the ground checking my camera and he about jumped out of his skin. And this was this year. Super nice guy. Ended up knowing some friends of his. He knew some friends of mine. Um, super cool dude. He literally, and I told him my background and that I'd been hunting a deer in there. And he goes, oh, you have that big deer on camera, don't you? And I said, I've actually been hunting this deer for a couple years. And he goes, you know what? He goes, I can tell by your stand. I can tell by your setup. You've been here a while. He goes, I'm going to go pull my tree stand that I just plopped up 200 yards from, and I'm going to get out of here. That's a pretty cool dude. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and I never saw him again. And like I told the guy, I said, that's cool. I really appreciate it. I'd do the same for you. That if I come stumbling in onto your spot and you're already established. And I think a lot of that stems back to just, like you said, the bow hunter guys kind of like to have some space and, and have some, you know, a little bit of anonymity. I think bow hunters like that. Mm-hmm. So anyway, good stuff. There's still some good people out there in the world. <laughs> yeah. And, and just, just like you have out here, out, out here, there's a, a lot of land. So, you know, especially if you do the, the front yeah. end work and you, you find a lot of good stuff in the off season, then you bump into a guy and it doesn't hurt you at all to just back off there. You could have your, you know, you've been hunting here for a while. I'll, I'll back off. I got other spots I can go hit up. Yep. And that's one thing I do too. When I, when I'm out prospecting, when I'm out just laying out some cameras in new country, if those cameras pick up a lot of activity that I didn't really notice or think that was going to be there a lot of times. And if the buck, you know, if I don't, if I see a lot of activity in the summer and other guys kind of poking around and maybe, can kind of tell they're probably out scouting too. A lot of times if, if there's just not a tremendous buck there, I just move on. Mm-hmm. I like to hunt a high percentage area that has a, that has a top in top 5% in my state caliber buck. You know, that's what I'm looking for. Top five or 10% for the state. And what usually to find one of those, it takes a lot of prospect and an effort, but once you, it, it's been interesting over the years, I've, I found some real solid 
habitat and elevation and terrain-based characteristics that I look for now, and I usually need all of them to work out. And when I do, boom, there's usually always a good deer or a real good potential buck to uh, monitor and either to hunt or let grow up. Yeah, well, it's definitely got me excited to get out and do some more scouting. And I, I think <laughs> I think after after talking to you, I think I'm going to put out cameras earlier this year than I have done in past and uh, obviously make sure that as soon as that snow is off and I can see some of that sign that's frozen in um, to see yep. if I can't expand that footprint a little bit and do some more prospecting. And obviously I know I have spots that are probably going to be good again this year that I hunted last year, but I want to, I want to try and increase that footprint and find several more that are just like it. Yep. And it's always nice to have more than not put all your eggs in one basket. That's for sure. Yep. A lot of times like this year, I ended up shooting, you know, a lot of times you end up going down the target list and end up killing it. Let's say, let's like I talked about earlier, let's say I have five good five-year-old bucks that I want to target in, in all the areas that I hunt here in the Northwest. If I've got a solid five bucks, that's a great number for me. And there's been a lot of years where I end up killing number three, number two or number three, because something happens to number one or number two gets killed by somebody else in rifle season. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So for me, it's always, for me, it's imperative to have three, four or five options if possible. That makes it fun. That keeps you on the positive, uh, Plus, I enjoy the scouting, the, the boots on the ground. Um, I'm happiest by far when I'm scouting. I'm just as happy when I'm out scouting and finding intriguing evidence or laying out a new area or seeing that a buck survived. I'm just as happy when, I, when I'm doing that as I am when I'm hunting. And really, the only time I'm ever happier is when I kill that target buck. And that's when, you know, that's the best part for me is all the work all the time history with a deer uh and killing that buck that i've been after now this year was kind of interesting i killed a really nice six-year-old buck big four by four biggest four by four i've ever killed he was six he was a trespasser i didn't even know him huh you know which doesn't hasn't happened to me in years but he was such a good deer i couldn't let him walk and i was actually targeting a big six by five but because I team up with my son, when that deer came in, I didn't recognize him, but I saw how good of a deer he was. I said, all right, I'm kill this deer. It's too good of a deer to let walk. Uh, I knew immediately, you know, just in the back of my mind, I know my son would, would be happy to jump in and hunt the buck I was targeting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we're a team. We always, you know, I, I honestly was would have been happier for my son to, going to go off and play college football this year that I know what his busy schedule is going to be like in the next five years. You know, I, I seriously, when I shot that trespasser buck this year, I call him a trespasser meaning I didn't know him very well. I ended up finding out I did know him a little bit, but a friend had to share some trail camera pictures with me from a mile and a half away to remind me what buck that was. I just hardly had ever got him on camera and he wasn't on my radar. He wasn't on my mind, but anyway, all that to say, I was excited that I killed this nice old buck that just a real unique big four by four, which I rarely shoot a four by four, but this buck was a stud. So I shot him anyway, all that. I uh, was excited that my son was going to get on this six by five that I was targeting and hunt him. And actually Tyson, my son ended up 
having the six by five, four or five days later at the same setup, same stand that I killed four or five days later, he had him 20 some yards straight on for several minutes and never could get a shot in him. Hmm. So it came, it was, it was close. It was super close to us killing two six year old deer at the same stand. Wow. That's pretty remarkable. And then, yeah, and then the season ran out on Ty. Ty just ran out of time. The buck was still there after season. The buck's still on the camera. As a matter of fact, the last time we checked on him to go pick his sheds up, he was still packing. We need to go check on him this weekend because I'm pretty sure now he won't be packing. Yeah, I'd be be curious to see those those sheds if you end up finding them. Yeah, we found him last year, and that's why I put the stand where I put it. And we were literally in his wheelhouse the whole month of late or half a month of the half, the second half of November and all of December, we we're in his wheelhouse based on where I found his sheds the year before told me everything about where he hid out. So yeah. And, he, and he'll be a tremendous buck to hunt next year. Cause he'll be, he'll be, he'll be either, he was either five and a half or six and a half this past year. We're pretty sure he was six. So at the youngest, he's five and a half. So either be six or seven next year. Yeah, well, let's let's. Uh, <laughs> my fingers are crossed for you. I'm I'm excited to see how that plays out next year. I'm sure you probably have other ones on the list too. Um, oh, I've got I've got two bucks that make this six by five look like a shrimp, <laughs> but they're world class. They're they're literally world class bucks. I have two that are public land. Two of the best bucks I've ever hunted in my lifetime. I have, and I'm praying that I find evidence, find their sheds or pick them up this spring alive, meaning pick them up on camera that they made it. If they do, and just between you and I, I'll send you the picture of my two superstars that puts this buck that Ty and I hunted at the end this year, the six by five as a rent, you know, he would be about third or fourth on the priority list. So I'm super excited, extremely excited about uh, this coming season. Now my, Hunting partner, my son has hunted hard with me since he's been little, and he's killed a couple tremendous uh, public land mountain whitetails. He's only bow hunted his whole life. That's what he loves. Uh, he won't even gun hunt a deer just because he spent so much time with me. He loves to be close, and he's killed his biggest bucks about 166 on a, off of public land, which is a stud, six mm-hmm. by five, yep. 21 inches wide, just a superstar. Anyway, all that to say, my son's going off to play football. And we all know what college football means. It's year round. It's he's playing at Montana state. Anyway, he's going to play safety over there and he's excited about that, but I'm losing my hunt partner <laughs> for a few years. Yeah. So I might, I might get a hunt with him a little bit in late season. If uh, they're not, you know, if they finish up, they usually will, they'll probably get in the playoffs every year. So it's one of those things where he's going to get a hunt with me now about a week out of the year, <laughs> which he spent his whole life just hunting his ass off with me. Yeah. So anyway, that's what we got going on. I got a couple great bucks for the future, and it sounds like you do too. And you know, as far as uh, getting out there, it's just again the the process to me is more rewarding or just as rewarding as the actual kill. I mean, don't get me wrong; I'm in it to kill them. That's what it's all about. But I love the process. Oh yeah, couldn't agree more. Yeah, I I. That's what keeps me young. Yeah. I even, I, I, I very much dislike sitting stationary in a tree. 
I'd much rather be walking. I just know that it's a lot, lo- lot higher likelihood that I, you know, end up filling my tag if I'm sitting still. Um, so yeah, yeah I definitely yeah. really enjoy the process, like going out to the various States and, and whatnot. And it's, it's really, really nice, uh, being able to, to chat with a guy like you, who's got that same, that same drive and, and mentality and a lot more experience than I have to, to pick your brain. Well, I, I really, really enjoyed talking to you, Garrett. You're uh, really appreciate the questions that you brought because it's taken a look at it at a real, you know, on a in-depth level. And you know, it's been a great conversation. I hope you hope your listeners, I hope you, I hope everybody that listens to this gets something quality out of it to use. You know, maybe a piece of it in their approach. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure they will. Um, where where else you, you obviously have your your facebook people can can look you up but is there any other places you'd like to point people to i know you've been on a couple of whitetail addictions episodes any, any place else absolutely um um of course i i've been with the whitetail addictions guys now for quite a while um so the whitetail addictions crew we, we film for them but as, as far as just reaching out talking to me and really getting into some in-depth uh conversations on messaging over scrapes. If guys want to chat with me, my Instagram is a great place to find me. It's a, uh, my Instagram handle is mountain man. So it's M T N M A N underscore 33, which is my old high school and college football number. So it's mountain man 33 on Instagram. And then I just kind of threw together a YouTube page, Troy Pottinger, just under my name that I'm going to really, I'm going to step up big time on my YouTube page and start posting live semi-live videos. Now Um, I've got probably, I don't know, 150, 200 videos of just bucks uh, on scrapes. And then I've got a couple videos showing me build some scrapes, but I really am going to step up that game on YouTube and, put a lot of a lot more content out there shed hunting uh scouting just short video clips i'll start adding to that so that's troy pottinger on youtube and then troy pottinger on facebook and then i do have a twitter account but you know twitter i'm not quite big enough for twitter i usually just follow people for twitter (laughs) but if guys want to follow my twitter if guys want to i post some cool stuff on twitter that i don't post anywhere else and i only post it on twitter so i I, there's some big deer on there, some of the superstars, and that's Mountain Man 33. But again, my Twitter's more for following, you know, the, the the real famous people just to kind of follow. But I do post some cool whitetail stuff, and especially some cool pictures of bucks that I'm hunting right now. Awesome. Oh, I'll definitely need to check that out, and appreciate you giving those links for the the listeners. I'm sure they'll definitely get a lot of. Uh, input and you know those those videos sound like a pretty awesome way to kind of learn firsthand visually something that you can't quite pick up from audio all the time yep if you if you go to my youtube page and just literally start it and let the videos play they're 15 to 30 second videos of white-tailed deer especially bucks hitting licking branches through the entire year yeah that sounds that sounds great. I'm going to go, go watch some of those myself. You'll see, you'll see a, you know, when bucks and understand too, a lot of my bucks migrate back in, in April. So you'll kind of see April, May, June, July, August, September, October, November, December, 
And then what happens is, just so the listeners understand, I get so much snow in most of my spots, my deer literally vacate the mountains January, February, March. So those are the months you won't see much on there. It's because literally there's three or four or five feet of snow where my cameras are. Yeah, that makes sense. I wouldn't want to stay in the mountains with that much snow either. Right. But when there's not a lot of snow, you'll see the bucks always work in those community scrapes from the time they get back and the does to the time they exit because there's too much snow. It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool video evidence, especially like in the summer. You can see bucks that I have on there that are great big monster mountain whitetails that are just progressively growing through the summer, but they're still working those licking branches. Awesome. Well, definitely be sure to, to check those out. And, uh, you know, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your afternoon to, to jump on the podcast and do this episode. I appreciate you, Garrett. Thanks for reaching out to me. And, and I know we talked about it before we got on uh, the cast, but that buck you shot this year sure was a hell of a buck. Congrats to you. Appreciate it. Yep. Thanks and again. And hopefully, hopefully we'll get to, maybe we'll get to do this again sometime. Yep, absolutely. We'll have to for sure. Alrighty, good luck. Good luck to you on your scouting this this year, and hopefully you're getting out, getting some boots on the ground. We're uh, we're hitting it pretty hard. We're just starting to hit it real hard out here. We got the snow levels where we can move around. Oh yeah, starting to get out there as much as I can. It's it's a little chilly right now. We uh, we're sitting in the highs right around zero and. Uh, I saw that. Negative 10 to <laughs> negative 15 lows, so yeah. it's a little yeah. chilly. Yeah, yeah, a little chilly, but here in a week or so, it'll probably be pretty good. Yep, for sure. All right, well, nice talking to you, Garrett. Same. We'll talk to you later. All right. Yeah, take care. That'll do it for this episode. As always, make sure to follow the Sportsman's Nation on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Leave us a review on iTunes, and if you're looking for additional content, subscribe to DIY Sportsman. And with that, thanks for listening.